Hello and welcome back to Lindenwood University, Butler Hall, the chair of the religion department, and I'm joined once again by my colleague, Dr. Nicole Thorbitsky, who is here for our semi-regular chats, only semi-regular at this point, but semi-regular chats about process theology and Bardian theology. And we've been going through Colin Gutton's book on Bart and Hartshorn as a way to kind of have it, that dialogue about those two different uh, schools of Theological thought. Theological thought. Theological I, thought. I would kick my students for that uh, construction, but oh well, it's a YouTube video. So welcome back, Nicole. Glad to be back. It's been lots of fun for me as a Bardian going through this material with the benefit of an expert to explain it all to me. I understand uh, a bit better now how folks must feel reading Bard who have no background in that. Uh, these guys are both really complicated and it's good to be able to have the back and forth. Um, today, we're planning to cover chapters three and four in Gunton's book, and that will finish up the section on Hartshorn. And one of the reasons that we decided to cover both those chapters in one video is, uh, well, we weren't particularly happy <laughs> with uh, Gunton's treatment of Hartshorn in these chapters, were we? I think he could have done a deeper reading. Could have done a deeper, that's a very politic way of putting it, a very polite academic way of putting it. Um, so we're gonna try to cover these and finish them up and the way I think we'll approach it, and we talked about approaching it beforehand, is uh, I'm going to act kind of like an interviewer and ask questions of Nicole about various things that Gunton says and that will give her the chance to explain to us a fuller, more robust, let's maybe even say more accurate reading of Hartshorn on these questions than we might get from Gunton himself. So this is kind of commentary on Gunton uh, as a reader of Hartshorn as well. Awesome, okay. So uh, chapter three is entitled A Monism and Analogy of Becoming. And one of the really interesting claims that um, Gutton makes in describing Hartshorn in this section is he describes Hartshorn's position as viewing God as memory. God's primary function is to remember and to kind of in that memory keep track of history and so on, but uh, interesting in itself, but Gutton then elaborates on that. Uh, that was on page 61. By page 64, he's talking about this thing he's calling panpsychism, which is, uh, he claims that Hartshorn predicates a kind of uh, psychology or subjectivity or you know, however we want to parse this to all aspects of reality rather than just uh, human beings and Gunton thinks that this is a little dicey so that by page 68 he's talking about anthropopathism as a way of getting at this attributing these kinds the, the human pathos human passions and and uh, emotions and so on to all aspects of reality so he's very skeptical of this I'm very skeptical that this is actually what's going on in Hartshorn. So, uh, Nicole, is, is, is Gutton right in his reading of Hartshorn about this, or, <laughs> or what would you want to say about anthropopathism? Well, actually, let's back up now and talk just a little bit about God is memory. Okay. And so, because that's where you started. It is where I started. Okay. So we would be on page 61, where uh, Gutton begins to talk about God's functions. And so... Uh, for process theology for Hartshorn, God is dipolar. And to say that God is dipolar is to talk about two or three, because 
once we get into process theology, there becomes a third nature. The two natures of God, often called the primordial and the consequent nature. And so uh, we talk about them as dipolar, but in God, they'd have to be integrated. And we talk about them as separate things in order to be able to talk about these specific functions, these things that God does for us and for God's own self, but they have to be integrated. Is this something like the doctrine of appropriations with the Trinity, where for the, the sake of clarity, one speaks about the Holy Spirit doing certain things and the Father doing other things and so on, that kind of? Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Very similar. And so to talk about God as the memory of the world is not completely wrong. So in God's consequent nature, God remembers or knows everything that has become actual in the world. So every choice that every thing in existence has made in its becoming in each moment is remembered perfectly by God, both in the objectiveness of that event, but also in that event or that occasion's own subjective feeling of its moment. And so God becomes the perfect repository of all of this. And Whitehead says, and Hartshorn agrees, that nothing that can be saved is lost. So everything that can be saved is saved in God. And we call this objective immortality. Interestingly, that's almost what um, the Presbyterian Church USA study catechism contains almost the exact same line. Nobody who can be saved will be lost. Which is a fascinating little coincidence. Well, he was, uh, Whitehead was an Episcopalian, I believe. Mm. Before moving to Harvard. (laughs) And so, but to say that that's all the consequent nature is, is an inconsistent reading with both Hartshorn and Whitehead. So God also has God's own subjective feeling of all of the datum of existence. So every moment that passes, everything that happens from our conscious level to our subatomic events that make up our bodies and the things around us. All of this is saved in God and also felt by God with God's own subjectivity. So that means with God's own will, according to what God would like to see for existence. And that hope that God has, that will that God has for existence is compared with what actually happened in each moment of event. And then from that difference, from that Um, will that God has for existence, grace is given to the next moment of becoming for everything in existence in order to help lure or guide us in the way that God would have us go. And in process terms, this is called the initial aim. I like to call it grace. (laughs) It's a good word. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, complicating the idea of God is memory. Yes, God is memory, but God is more than memory. God also is interactive. Okay, you also, along the way, made a comment about the events that occur and their subjectivity, and that that would get us back more to Gunn's whole thing with panpsychism and anthropopathism. How can events have feelings? (laughs) Right, like how can dirt or a rock have feelings? Uh, The word that Whitehead and Hartshorn use interchangeably with feeling is prehension which is related to the word apprehend. And so what that means is that 
everything in existence is exposed to the data of of everything that has come before us previously. Hmm. It's a lot of data. It's a lot of data. It's a lot, a lot of data for for one moment of dirt to bring into existence. And so most of that is completely unnecessary for the existence to dirt and therefore is negatively prehended. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so not felt, but the feeling of not feeling something is still a feeling. Okay, so dirt has feelings. So dirt. In the sense of prehension. Prehends. And is, is prehension basically a way of talking about um, historical context? Prehension is a way of talking about historical context. The weight of the past is another way we like to talk about mm -hmm. it. The weight of the past of a molecule of dirt is still the weight of the past. Everything that had come before it in existence brought that piece of dirt to this moment. So you don't get that particular physical configuration without all the configurations that came before it. And when they're talking about the subjectivity of an event and prehension and so on, that's what they're referring to. The implication is not somehow that dirt has consciousness. No. So not all feelings rise to consciousness. And for most creatures in existence, very few prehensions or feelings rise to consciousness, even in human beings. How many events do we have every day and very few of which rise to consciousness? Mm. Right. So to suggest that this is, oh, what's the word that he uses? Which one? Anthropopathism? Anthropopathism, which is a wonderful portmanteau. <laughs> like I gotta give Glenn credit where credit is due. This is fabulous. <laughs> it is also inaccurate of what happens. It is not necessarily even to, and other process theologians can kind of uh, ring in on this, but it's not necessarily even panpsychism. It is the truth of the fact that everything prehends, that not everything feels as human beings feel. Not everything, not all prehensions, and very few prehensions are actually sense data. I think that's a very helpful clarification. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, Gutton continues on with um, kind of focusing on the mind as a way of understanding the sort of thing that God is in Hartshorn's thought. And this leads him a few pages later on page 71 to talk about panentheism, his characterization of um, Hartshorn's position, uh, that everything is in God somehow, and he brings up uh, the mind-body analogy. And this is an analogy that anybody who's had any kind of textbook encounter with process thought will have encountered. It's kind of the one that gets used a lot, uh, this mind-body analogy. So I thought, Nicole, if you'd be so kind as to explain this to us um, not in the textbook manner, but in the manner that a process theologian would want it to be explained. So typically the way the mind-body analogy for God in the world goes uh, when people are describing panentheism is that God is basically the mind of the world and the world is the body of God. Um, and this is also an inaccurate reading of how both Hartshorn and process theology view God's relationship with the world. So each individual moment, so each, each moment that comes into existence has its own subjectivity to feel the data of the past or not and to become what it will be with this initial grace from God that helps to direct, lures, uh, 
a moment to what it could be at its best possible. And each moment has the choice to accept that initial in completely in conformity or to make its own subjective choices. Now, this immediately eliminates God as the mind of the world. If each moment has its own subjectivity and God in God's own self has subjectivity, then this, it doesn't hold. So to say that process theology and heart turn are panentheists is certainly true because everything does end up in God in the consequent nature. Once a moment loses its subjectivity and becomes objective datum for the next event, that datum is taken up into God and felt subjectively. So it ends up in God in the sense again of memory. Yes. Uh, it gains an objective immortality in God. Now, right at the end of the chapter, Gunton um, makes the claim that this way of thinking turns God into merely a receiver of human or creaturely action. So the idea is that God is out there receiving this in, these inputs uh, that go into God as memory, that God as uh, memory contains all of these things, again, the panentheistic thing. Um, is, is there no agency for God then? Is God just this sort of passive database out there? Right, right, right. Great question. So I alluded to this a little bit earlier. So God has God's own subjectivity and own will. So everything that becomes objectively immortal in God is felt subjectively by God. And God actually has a will that comes to each moment in the initial aim. So in that grace for each moment, that lore for what we ought to be doing, what each thing in existence ought to be doing in each of its moments to be its best possible. And so there is definitely a will and an agency there that is simply not coercive. So God is interactive Incredible. with these events as they come to be, so that when God is remembering, God is remembering not only the creaturely, but also God's own agency and interaction. Right. So God, so God actively has a will for what existence should look like and actively works toward that through this lore, through this initial aim for each event, which is non-coercive. An, an occasion can choose to accept that aim or not, or some of it and not all of it, uh, and make its own choices. And then God takes that choice for its better or its worse and offers more grace for the next moment and more grace for the next moment and slowly lures the world to the goodness that God would have for us, even though sometimes the best be bad. <laughs> it, uh, the way that Gunton makes all of these arguments with memory and talks about memory as containing things just made me think of Augustine and his work in the Confessions on Memory where he kind of understands memory as containing imprints of experiences that we've had that then our mind can put together to imagine other kinds of things but it's all fundamentally based on these imprints that have been received and are now contained in the mind and of course there's all kinds of fascinating science being done these days on the how active our minds are in constructing memories and how it's possible to plant memories and confuse the mind in all of these different ways. So Gutton seems to be operating with that very Augustinian notion of memory. And maybe that version of memory is not what it might be. Maybe that version of memory is not what it might be, simply <laughs> as a perfect repository of what could be. And don't get me wrong, God does 
perfectly retain everything that has passed uh, objectively. And nonetheless, God's own subjective feeling compares that to what God wills for us. And then, based on God's will for us, we get grace for the next moment and the next moment. And according to process theologians in Hartshorn, a moment can't come into existence without that initial grace from God. Grace for that moment and the next moment, uh, mercy that's new every morning, all of this sounds vaguely familiar. It does. <laughs> <laughs> right at the end of this chapter, chapter three, and if you have anything you want to jump in with that we haven't gotten to, by all means, but Gutten makes what I took to be a derogatory comment. Now, I could be wrong. <laughs> One? <laughs> the one I'm going to highlight. <laughs> he made, what I took it to be a derogatory comment. He describes Hartshorn's concept of God as sentimental. What's going on there? Is it bad to be sentimental? I don't know. The whole, the whole comment just confuses me. I just, so I wonder if you just have any thoughts on that. So when... Hartshorn is doing his early writing and Whitehead is doing his writing. This is going to be post Whitehead is writing post World War One and Hartshorn is writing post World War Two. And so there is still this feeling in the world that even though these very bad things have happened, that things are still on an upward trajectory uh, toward things getting better and better and better. And so in a lot of the theological writing, there is this sense of optimism and urgency towards things getting better. And there is this notion that the lore of God is constantly luring the world toward better. And so why wouldn't we get better? Well, uh, that could lead towards some sentimentality. Uh, but that sentimentality is the optimism of the writers and not necessarily inherent in the metaphysic. The truth of the metaphysic is sometimes the best is bad. What I think throws me is on the, the sentimentality comments on page 80. On page 79, he makes the point, he argues, the doctrine that God is love does not arise directly from the metaphysical system. So I can't help but read his complaint about sentimentality as having something to do with whether or not we should conceive of God as love, <laughs> which is very confusing because I thought that was the whole thing of the Christianity business. Um, there's that lovely epistle from John uh, in the New Testament that speaks along these lines. Um, but Gunton's claiming that the God is love piece is not coming out of the metaphysics is kind of getting added later on. And he, he seems to think that that's an intellectually illicit thing. Mm. Um, okay. So that would also be a misreading of, uh, huh. of both, both Hartshorn <laughs> and process theology. Uh, so so in traditional theism, it becomes harder to make the claim that God is love. Because as an unmoved mover, whose love is simply a willing the good for another, um, that, that can't be not love, but it's certainly not the truest, deepest kind of love that, that we know love to be and that is demonstrated biblically. So we have a God in the Bible that is deeply concerned and deeply moved 
by the joy and the suffering of God's people. So moved by the plight of this world that God is willing to send the second person to become one of us in order to lead us to salvation. Earn salvation for us, whatever language you would like to use around that. We won't get into doctrines of the atonement today. <laughs> and process theology is truer to that biblical concept of a God that is deeply moved by the suffering of God's people. And so when the consequent nature feels the objective and the subjective feelings of existence, God is moved by that deeply and sends grace for the next moment in response, in loving response to the events of this world. To argue that the process God is sentimental and love is added in would be to misunderstand the metaphysics. That seems to be my mantra of this. <laughs> <laughs> so what, you, what do you need to know about Gutton's chapter three? Seems to understand, un, misunderstand the metaphysic. I'm, I'm gonna say he misunderstands in some ways. Chapter four, Nicole. Chapter four, let's go to chapter four. From analogy to proof, he's dealing with um, Hartshorn's interaction with traditional proofs for the existence of God. Uh, I don't know how much we want to get into those, one thing that stuck out to me on page 88 is Gutton argues that what you have in Hartshorn is a view of language, just in general, not necessarily theological language even, but just language that exists in the world. He says it performs a revelatory function. And of course, this makes me think of analytic philosophy. Uh, one could criticize analytic philosophy along those same lines. Was, was Hartshorn an analytic philosopher? What's the relationship between process and analytic philosophy? What's going on with this criticism here from Gunn? So there are some people doing uh, the bridges between process and analytic philosophy, but Hartshorn was not an analytic philosopher and language games were not really all that he was interested in. Uh, he was doing metaphysics. Um, and so, I think perhaps what Gunton might be doing is a little projection, kind of reading his own analytics into what Hartzorn is doing. Interesting. Never would have suspected. He also is working to kind of parallel Hartzorn with Kant quite a bit. Um, kind of one of the results of that has to do with what kind of claims one thinks one can legitimately make metaphysically. And so Gunton kind of elaborates the idea that for process metaphysics, for Hartshorn, it's impossible to have a uh, account of creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, which traditionally is a central Christian theological claim. Uh, Jewish theology as well, Muslim theology, it's kind of a basic Abrahamic kind of thing. Um, and one could easily get the idea that it would be problematic if process could not provide an account of this. So let's ask the ex expert, uh, what does process have to say about creatio ex nihilo? So creatio ex nihilo is not biblical. <gasps> oh my. Oh my, I'm gonna get death threats now. <laughs> We can't joke about those kinds of things in 2017. You're right. 
So uh, the biblical accounts of creation are that God breathes order over chaos. And so when we talk about creation in process terms, God isn't the only creative power in existence. Existence has a limited amount of creative power. And so for process, there, there are, let me just be clear, there are process theologians out there doing creatio ex nihilo stuff. Uh, that's not my area of expertise. What I know from Hartshorn and Whitehead is that the understanding is much like the biblical account, that there was chaos, and through that grace, that initial grace that God offers, God lured order and novelty into this world, and thereby caused the creation of what we know now, slowly, over millions of years. God is a patient God. Lucky for us. Lucky for us. It makes me think of the distinction between, um, I think it's the Eloist, or the priestly source and the Yahweh source, uh, the two different accounts of creation there in Genesis. You have the first one in Genesis 1 that's very ordered and focused on God's activity. But then you get the second one in Genesis 2 where Adam is expected to name the animals and seems to be taking a much more creative and active role in the structuring of creation. Um, the emphasis on tending the garden and continuing that kind of creative work and energy uh, would seem to mesh up very well with some of these ideas. Very sure. So, no, not necessarily Kratio ex nihilo, but there, then again, that's not necessarily in the Bible either. Very true. Well, that seems like a good resting place, I think. Is there, is there anything else you want to say about chapter four and gotten here? Any closing remarks? Yes. If you're actually interested in getting a true introductory, introductory introduction to what process theology is, I'm going to just direct everyone to this lovely little track put out by uh, John Cobb, John B. Cobb, uh, Jr. Let me get his name right. It's called The Process Theology, an Introductory Introduction. And it's put <laughs> out by Process and Faith. So if you were to Google these things online, you could find the introductory introduction, which takes out all of the technical language and the difficult stuff in Whitehead and Cobb puts process theology in a way that's very understandable. And I would suggest that anyone who's struggling with gotten or would like a better idea of what process theology is, go check that out. I will do my best to put a link to that in the information below the video, uh, and that'll help you find it more easily. Um, next time, when we, when we make our next video, whenever that may be, uh, we'll be shifting to Gutten's discussion of Bart, so we'll see if I have as many complaints about his reading of Bart as Nicole had about his reading of Hartshorn. I'll have many questions, though. And uh, we'll, we'll also have some good back and forth about Bart as well as we move forward, so shifting gears a little bit from here on out in the series, and hopefully it won't be too long before we get to do that next video. Soon. So for the time being, Travis McMacken and Nicole Turbitsky from Lindenwood University's Department of Religion saying so long and happy reading in process in Barney and Theology.